0: Well, this morning, I'm going to read from Genesis 6, 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth and the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Sister D. Good morning, church. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, I am here as a man with unclean lips. I am not someone that comes here as any better than anyone here, or anyone in the earth, but as one who has sinned against you in grievous ways and deserves your wrath. But Lord, I also stand here as a man under your mercy and I thank you. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning, that you cause the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, and Lord, that you poured out your mercy on me in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Lord, we pray now that you would speak, you change all of our hearts, that we would look beautiful in your sight, that we'd be righteous and holy. We would find favor in your eyes as a people, peculiar people in this wicked generation. We pray that you do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Start with a couple of stats here. 186 billion. What do you guys think that number represents? Well, it represents the... Total prostitution revenue worldwide. What about this number? 40 million. That's a number representing the amount of prostitutes that we, we know to exist in the world. Disturbing fact alongside of that is that 90% of those prostitutes are dependent on a pimp. Or this stat fifteen billion. This is the approximate and this is a a low estimate, a low approximate of the yearly worth of pornography in our nate or in our world, one billion of which comes from the United States. This is a disturbing one. In the United States, pornography generates more revenue than CBS, NBC, and ABC combined. And more than all professional football, baseball, and basketball franchises. And it gets worse. If you didn't already pick up on that stat about the, the prostitutes dependent on pimps, it's an extremely large percentage in this industry that's tied to sex trafficking. So prostitution, pornography, and sex trafficking are very much dependent on one another and when I say sex traffic, I mean the enslaving and selling of humans for sex. If there was time, I could, I could spend some time uh, giving you some stats about violence in our city and nation, in the world, genocide. And what does all that have to do with today's sermon with us right here in this room? Today, we're going to see a story we just read of a generation that lived before a great flood came on the earth, and we're reading in this story a lot of similarity with those people to us now. We're, we're actually not so different than them. They're not so different than us this is a tragic scene that we're going to be looking at today, hence the, the heaviness of this introduction. As we look into the depths of human hearts, as we get a glimpse of the dark, deep darkness of man's heart, we're also going to see contrasted to the wicked one who is righteous. That there's a remnant don't walk in the same path as the rest of the world. We're also gonna look at God's heart and his reaction to all of this. Just give a little context here as we get in. Last week, we saw a genealogy. Sammy did a great job of, of making a genealogy. Very interesting, those can be challenging. We saw two lines, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And already, as you see the, the line of, of man, kind of spreading on the earth, it seems like the promise that God gave in Genesis 3.15, the offspring would crush the head of the serpent, is snuffed out. That it seems like the serpent is winning. It seems like that promise is dead. But the promise is alive, and we see a few people mentioned, like Enoch, who walked closely with the Lord. And here in, at the end of chapter five, we see a hint of another, Noah. But, but chapter 6 pauses the story of Noah to share more details of what the earth was like in the time of Noah. So let's look there, verse 1, and try to unpack and understand the earth before the flood. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose." So I'll just say from the outset, there are some very confusing and challenging aspects to this text, and I do want to try to answer those questions, like who are the Nephilim, who are the sons of God, you know, all those things. But right now, I want to dive in first and try to get a glimpse of what is going on more broadly, and then we'll answer some of those things. The first verse starts out pretty good. You'd think it's a good thing when it says that man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. After all, God had said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So you, you should see like, okay, children, good. It's, it's good that there's multiplication happening here. The image of God was meant to spread over all the earth as humans are born. We are born in the image of God and we're meant to spread God's image and his glory to the earth. But sadly, the picture is different. Rather than God emphasizing the positive here, we see that with the multiplication of humanity is a multiplication of sin, of wickedness. It seems that just the opposite of what God intended for all the earth to be filled with the glory of God, as humanity spreads and multiplies over it, it seems like just the opposite. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the serpent, the domain of darkness, of sin, is spreading in great measure, I want you to see there's a tight connection in the language here of the sons of God's sin with Eve's sin in Genesis chapter three, verse six. And I have a slide I want to just point out real quickly here. Just as Eve saw that the fruit was good and took for herself, it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters were attractive, or you could say good, and took any they choose. They chose. They chose. So this is not something positive that's being presented here. And and I don't think you should you should make much of the word the fact that it says that they took wives for themselves because from the start this is painting a dark story. It's painting a dark stroke of humanity here. They took any they choose is not innocent attraction and a pursuit of marriage, but something that is perverted and twisted. And these first verses seem to show a picture of powerful men who are just taking whatever they want, whether through rape or some other measure. They're taking as they will. It's obviously sinful. So multiplication is happening, but instead of God's image filling the earth, it is a filling of sexual perversion, of violence, of wickedness on the earth. Multiplication church is inevitable. God has given us this task to be fruitful and multiply, and we see it. It's seven billion in counting, right? But what is not inevitable is God's kingdom and image advancing. After the fall of mankind, what is inevitable is sin advances as we multiply, and that is why we pray with the Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We want the stop of evil and the advance of the kingdom of God, but here we see just the opposite. It is a spreading, a multiplying of evil, evil. and in verse three, we get the first look of God's heart as he looks down on this thing. It says... My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Here, God is essentially saying, I cannot tolerate this wickedness forever. You may remember in Genesis 2, verse 7, God formed the man from the dust of the earth and then breathed the breath of life into him. That word for breathe or, or breath is the same word that we have here for spirit. So what's the connection? God is the life-giving spirit of all humanity. He is the one who gives life. He can also take life, and here we see in measure, he is saying, I'm not gonna let this go on forever. I am gonna remove myself so that they will perish and not allow wickedness to continue to spread so rampantly. I still am amazed when I read that, that, that God would allow them to live 120 years at all. It's like, man, that's a crazy thing to read, that he's, he's shortening life from like 900 years we're reading about in the, in the genealogy to 120. I mean, it's a big blow, but still, friends, we sit here today under this reality, able to live on this earth, even with our wicked hearts before God. That is mercy. I got up this morning and I... I the sun was shining. I praise praised God for sun in the winter months, right? And I was just like, man, Lord, I feel your mercy right now. I feel the reality that I could be swept away in your wrath because of my sin. All of us could this very day, and yet God is mercifully giving to us some of us long life. He lets us live on this earth even when we're wicked, and he lets the rain fall on the wicked and the unjust. He lets the sun come up on the wicked and the unjust alike. Verse five gives us a, a second glimpse of what God saw from heaven. I'll come back to verse four. That's where the heart of the challenges are. Let's look there together. The Lord saw that the wicked some man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually. This is tragic, considering that God at one time saw his creation and said, this is very good, right? And now he looks and he sees creation and he says, it's filled with wickedness. God is grieved here. The depravity described here is complete, I want us to focus in on some of these words. God saw that every intention was evil. Not just every action, but every intention, the motives behind the action. Every intention, it says, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Friends, this is not a description of people who are are like pretty good people, but mistaking sometimes. You know, like we so often excuse ourselves. Oh yeah, I make some mistakes sometimes. No, this is the description of a person who is guided by, bent by evil. Entire heart motivated and guided by evil continually. Continually. This is a matter of lifestyle, this is what they do. This this people is defined by sin, they're slaves to it. And I admit, when I read something like this, it's easy for me to think, oh my goodness, they are some bad people, right? And I quickly excuse myself, I see myself as like, I start to kinda put all the good works, tally all the good works up, and all of a sudden I start to feel a little better about myself, like I'm not like them. But friends, keeping in mind the stats that I read earlier, (laughs) allow me to submit to you that without Christ, we are no different. We are the same. If you and I were left to our sin for 900 years, there's no telling what we, what sins, what evil we would commit on this earth. When left to ourselves to pursue our own freedom, our own passions, our own happiness, we don't find ourselves seeking God and the good of our brothers and sisters. No, we spiral into greater and greater depravity. We talked about this a couple weeks ago that, that Cain's sin overtook him. It led to lie after lie. It led to greater murder. It led to evil. It just overtakes him. We are... We spiral into greater depravity and we're enslaved to the lust of the flesh and we end up hurting people in our selfishness. I wanna point out, I wanna make this this clear from the fuller testimony of scripture. I wanna read a few other verses that captivate this point that we are depraved, that, that humanity is depraved, that our hearts are not bent towards good, bent towards God, but actually just the opposite, Romans 3, 10 to 12, it says, For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You can't get more complete than that, right? All of us. Look at Jeremiah seventeen nine. It says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So down to our very core church, the heart is described as deceitful and sick. We think of ourselves as having good and, and generating good, but even our heart, even our motives, are sick. Let me get into more of the motives here. Titus 1, 15. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. That's a different, little different translation than mine here. Sorry about that. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. I just want to focus in on that line. Nothing is pure. Again, it's it's hard for us to, to think that, man, what about my good what about the good things that I do? Like, aren't those good? Doesn't God see that? Well, the problem with even our good works, church, is that they are motivated, and and this is apart from Christ, hear me. Our even our good works are motivated by self-glory, self-seeking, rather than the glory of God. And this can even be true of us in the church, I should say. Finally, Ephesians 2, 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You cannot escape this truth in Scripture that the Bible says that we are all like this, this description that God gives every single human being evil to the core, depraved totally and not just them but even 21st century enlightened educated Americans and as a result Ephesians says without Christ we are by nature children of wrath now I'm going to get to the wrath in a minute that's a big part of God's you know response here, but first I, I want to pause and look at verse two and four and try to answer briefly the question about the sons of God and the Nephilim. Okay. Now I studied this a great deal, and I wish I had a long—I t- wish I had an hour to sit here and, and unpack every argument of who these guys are. I think it's uh, interesting and sometimes fun, uh, but I'm not going to do that today. I will probably put out a podcast or, or a blog. This week, just to try to give you some more uh, more details, if that interests you, two of you in this room. <laughs> but uh, I, for now, will briefly present a couple different positions and then share with you what I believe is most plausible. So there's three prominent views in church history. The sons of God are seen as the fallen angels who transgressed their God-given boundaries by sleeping with human women and having giant offspring, and this, this is argued from you know, connections to Job, where the sons of God is, uh, is, is translated as, you know, as angels. The sons of God are the angels, so that's one position. The sons of God in uh, a second position is the sons of God are the godly line of Seth intermarrying with the ungodly daughters from Cain's line. So let me just make that clear. Chapter five lays out Seth's line This is the the godly, the sons of God. Whereas Cain's line, the daughters of man. And what's the sin here is that they're intermarrying and it's producing more and more evil. And the third view is the view I take, which is that the sons of God are rulers, tyrannical rulers or human kings whose offense in this situation is polygamy, promiscuity, and rape against Women under their rule. Every view has challenges. I'm gonna try to quickly show you why I believe the tyrannical human rule ruler view is the strongest. First, I believe that the sons of God are human, not fallen angels, because of Jesus' statement in Matthew twenty-two, verse thirty, that humans in the resurrection will be like angels who neither marry or are given in marriage. So I see a problem with with the description of this this being angels who are, fallen angels who are having sex with women because of this statement. Uh, another, Another point is that as you look at the immediate context of the passage, the judgment God makes in verse three for the behavior of the sons of God is against man. The judgment is against man. He says, my spirit will not abide in man forever. So I think it's a weird thing to deduce that these are angels when the judgment that's coming on mankind is from their wickedness. It'd be weird if God judged mankind on the basis of angels' works, okay? Does this matter to anybody in here? Okay, I think we all have asked these sorts of questions like, what is going on in this text? Further, while I believe the case for Seth's line intermarrying is somewhat compelling with the clear contrast set up between Seth's line and Cain's line in chapters 4 and 5, I do believe it's a stretch to assume that Seth's line was entirely godly and that you can therefore call them characteristically the sons of God, whereas all of Cain's line is characteristically needing to be defined as the daughters of man. It's possible There are some very convincing arguments for this, and all of church, you know, there's a lot of church history who holds this view, but I think that they are human rulers who are set apart from the rest of humanity. And I think that these human rulers are acting in these evil ways, and other people are following suit. So, just there's just evil rampant, running rampant. Let me just give you a couple reasons why I believe that. The title Son of God is a royal theme in the Bible. And outside of the Bible. Okay? So you see, in let me look at the Bible point first. Psalm 82, human rulers or judges are called gods or sons of the Most High. So you get this picture in Scripture of human rulers being elevated and, and called with this divine sort of. Title. They're sons of the most high. That's not an argument that we are divine. It's only a theme that the Bible gives, that rulers have an elevated place. Royal sonship is also seen in God's covenant made with David in 2 Samuel. He says, I will be his father and he will be my son. This is referring to his offspring who would rule after him. So there is this theme in scripture that, we are, that the rulers, the kings, are sons of God. And then you find outside of scripture in epic, the epic of Gilgamesh and other places where you find these great heroic warriors who are you know, called a son of the gods and who are known for their tyrannical leadership. They, they take whomever they choose. Gilgamesh is said to have had the right to the first night with any woman getting married. Isn't that disgusting? So whether by you know, rape or some, something else, he is, he is forcing himself. He's doing whatever he can. So he's a tyrannical, evil ruler. So ultimately, this interpretation, the sons of God, in this interpretation, the sons of God are the heroic tyrant kings of old. They are the men of renown. And the daughters of men seems to refer to any female in the kingdom. So God is basically here limiting the lifespan of these wicked rulers who are destroying the earth and others are following in their footsteps. Lamech, the first Lamech we read about in Genesis chapter four is maybe the first picture we get of this sort of evil leader. He takes multiple wives. He kills anyone who gets in his way. He's an evil man and he seems to just emerge in power as he grows older. The Nephilim then, I believe, are either examples of these evil rulers called the mighty men of old or they are simply contemporaries. It's just a, a, a you know, the, the Bible is basically just saying, hey, these guys, these mighty men existed in this era. So there seems to be a time before the flood where there are, there, there's this picture of, of great men who are taking power they're great heroes renowned by others and yet they're, they're doing great evil upon earth. They're taking a position of, of, of God and they are, instead of producing God's character on earth and benevolence of God's character as rulers, they are producing evil and wickedness. So I just need to say, it's okay if you disagree with me on this. There's a lot of Christians who have disagreed in the past. But whatever position you find most compelling here, there is a clear problem that has emerged in this, and that is the wickedness of mankind. And God is gonna deal with that wickedness, okay? I'm gonna pause there with, any, with those arguments. I hope that was helpful. I hope that was clear. I'll try to give some more details later. Take a deep breath. We're good. Everybody good? Mine's okay? <laughs> All right. Verse six, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I made them. I have literally wept over these words. Um, making my way through scripture, reading this story. If you, if you just sit down and read, you could spend an hour and get to this scene in the Bible. when you go from the incredible beauty of God's world and all that he has made, and then so quickly you come to the place where God is looking down and saying, this is grievous. What has become of my world? To the degree that he is ready to just put an end to it. He's like, this cannot go on. Mankind is unrecognizable because of sin. I wanna to try to answer a question I think is important. What, is it, what does it mean that God regretted making mankind? Well, I, I think it's a mistake to read into that word that God that Yahweh is like wringing his hands there like, what have I done, oh no, I messed up, I really made a mistake this time. I don't think that's the point of this. I think instead, you need to look at that line, it grieved him to his heart. It seems that his regret, his sorrow is tied to the grief over the unbridled sin of mankind and the resulting pain that it's bringing on the earth. He's grieved to his heart, we see a window into the heart of a troubled creator. Is there any greater pain than a parent has when they see their, a, a, a child lost in their sin? Here we get a glimpse of a God who is deeply broken over his creation over what he has done. And this is, the first, this is the first time we get a glimpse of it. Surely God was grieved when, he, when his first humans, Adam and Eve, sinned and when Cain sinned. But here you're told that as it's multiplied and filled the earth and all the earth is just increasing the wickedness, that God is just utterly grieved, and friends I think when you read this you should get you should really see the nature of our God see him not as one who is powerless and anxious but still he is one who is affected by his creation he's affected by us he's affected by our actions we see God still in control here he still has purposes for the earth Look at verse seven with me. I will blot out man from the earth and animals. I'm not gonna touch on the animals piece there. That's, that's a really challenging one that Sam's gonna go after next week as he unpacks the flood. But for now, I just wanna focus on what God is doing here in the flood. It says that he will blot out or paint over as if the ma- mankind has never been there. And all of this would come about in the great flood. Amen. But our section here ends with a ray of hope. You see, verse eight, in contrast to all of the wickedness, and in contrast to the, the wickedness of man, he says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You may remember at the end of chapter five that Noah is prophesied by his father to bring relief to the earth from their pain but surprisingly here it's it's not humans who first experience relief but it's god do you see that god is grieved at sin he's grieved at humanity but he looks and he finds rest in his heart as he looks upon noah he's moved he finds relief Noah offers relief. There is one who pleases God. So this question arises then, what is it about Noah that brings pleasure to God's heart? What is it about Noah? Well, if you look at the next verse, at verse nine, I'm not gonna unpack this, this is Sam's text, but it says that Noah is righteous, even blameless, one who walked with God. Now, I just wanna... I wanna talk about two ruts really quickly here. I think when we, when we read a story like this, when we see, okay, there's one guy who's like emerged above the rest, it's easy for us to fall into two ruts or two ditches. On the one hand, we see him as someone who is just in, in a remarkable guy, who happened to swim against the tide of his generation and earned the favor of God, earned a relationship with God. But on the other, we quickly dismiss the righteous works of the man in order to say, it's all grace. We forget the, the good works there. But I don't think this is a di- dichotomy that we should be making. I don't think that's what Scripture is intending for us. And I don't, that's certainly not the testimony of Scripture as a whole. Instead, on the one hand, we see that, yes, God has shown grace to Noah. There's clearly an elective purpose for Noah. And you see that in the prophecy that his father says, this man is going to bring relief humanity that's grace but there's another important factor here we're told that he walked with God and the, the importance of that is that this man's good works are not absent from a relationship with God it's not as though he his good works like get him to relationship got, with God instead his relationship with God is what precedes his good works and allows for his good works it's wrong for us to see it devoid of the relationship. His relationship with God is Noah's saving grace. On the other hand, the clear interest of verse eight is to contrast the righteous acts of Noah with the wicked acts of the sons of God and all humanity. Why would Noah be destroyed like all the rest? Why did he find favor in God's sight? Churches, because he was a righteous man. His good works pleased the heart of God. So in a relationship with God, so sorry, a relationship with God built on grace precedes the good works, but Noah's righteous life is the fruit by which he would ultimately be judged. Can I say that one more time? I think this is important for us to get. A relationship with God, which is built on grace, Remember, we are all separated from him because of our sin. That precedes works. But here, Noah's righteous life is the fruit by which he is ultimately judged by God. Now, I want to pause in the story because that's the end of our text today. But I want to try to bring this home for us right now. What does this mean for us? How should we live today in light of what we're seeing? And I want to just ask you a question. When the Lord looks on your life, is He pleased? When He looks upon you, does He find favor? Does He find delight? like he did with Noah, or does he see someone participating in all the same wicked acts of this generation? Does he see somebody who's given to pornography or hooking up on dating apps, choosing whomever you will, lusting after the person at the gym? Does he see you taking pleasure, picking pleasure in whatever you choose and doing what is right in your eyes? Which category do you fall in today? Church, I wanna remind you that God still looks upon humanity like he did then. Second Chronicles puts it this way, 16.9. It says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. What that's showing us is that his heart is still moved by us. His heart, his eyes are looking and he's looking for the one who is blameless towards him, who has a heart towards him. And again, what does he see when he looks at you? Is he grieved or is he pleased by you? The answer to this question could not be more important. As the narrative unfolds, we see that one man is rescued while the rest will perish in sin under the wrath of God. The same is true today. The promise is clear that there is another flood, not a, not a, a water flood, but one that the, the wrath of God is gonna be poured out and all the earth is gonna be, be burnt up. Only the godly will escape. What then... Does it look like, what does it take to be devoted to living for God in this twisted generation? What does it it take for us to find favor in God? I want to say first, this is simple. But friends, it starts with a relationship with God. You must have a relationship with God. God. Apart from him, there is nothing that we're gonna do. There is no good works that we can do. If left to ourselves, even our best good works are full of unholy motives and attitudes. Age is not enough to cleanse us. Good intentions are not enough. A program is not enough. No, we need relationship with God. We need to be united to the one who has power to help us overcome but as we've been looking in this book is the problem is humanity has been separated from God. We don't have a relationship with God by nature of our sin. The very thing that we need is, is driving us, we're driven away because of our sin. So our sin is killing us. We're separated from God and yet to be rescued we need God. So how do we get a relationship with God? The problem is that we've been separated. We get a relationship with God through faith in Christ. Church, the only means to relationship with God is through faith in Jesus. Just as Noah put faith in God, he is, is commended for his faith, Hebrews 11 says. We, too, must put faith in God, and God's provision for salvation is Jesus Christ, so relationship with God is only possible if you are clinging to Jesus in faith. And friends, if that's true right now, if you're clinging to Jesus in faith, that means that you do not have to fear God's wrath. <laughs> Why? Let me just point you to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. God was reconciling the world to himself. Reconciling means bringing back into relationship. How? In Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. How? It says in verse 21, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God for his provision in Christ. What that means today is if you are trusting in Jesus, when he looks upon you, he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees his good works. And he's pleased, amen? That is good news for us. Every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and yet, when we are, we're told here in scripture that God has provided for us a means that God can see us as holy, as righteous, that we can find favor in his sight through Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ, his son. Praise God, But there's still more to the story in scripture. This story of relationship with God being restored is not the end. It's not like we get a passport to heaven stamped and that's the end of the Christian life. Just like it wasn't for Noah. Noah had a relationship with God, but what did it produce? It produced good works. Works that caused God to look and say, oh, he's different. He's different. I'm so pleased by him. You can't get close to God. You can't be in relationship with God and not be changed, church. When we get close to God, it stirs us. It causes us to want to be like him. We see all the ways we're not like him, and we start to cling to him. God, oh, Father, I put faith in you. Help me to overcome my sin. That's the sort of thing that a relationship with God produces, to be in relationship with God is to be adopted into his family. And Romans says that when we're adopted into his family, we are led by the Spirit of God. And what that means is we are putting to death the evil deeds of the flesh as we keep our eyes fixed on the Lord and walk with him in righteousness. The Christian life is not defined by, a self, by self-sufficiency or self-righteousness, please don't hear me saying that, but it's by faith in a big and powerful God who can not only save us from the wrath of God, but also can make us pure, amen? He makes us pure, he allows us, he gives us strength to do righteous acts. And I'm not just talking about overcoming clearly unacceptable sins like lust or pornography or prostitution, but even the ones that are more acceptable in our society like discontentment or or lack of self-control with money or food or gossip or any of these things. Friends, God is strong enough to help us overcome. So what set Noah apart? Noah apart. It's that he lived his life every day in faith as if he was living it before the face of God recognizing himself as a sinner in need of grace in church there has been a remnant throughout humanity that has looked like that in this wicked generation there is still a remnant of people that God looks upon and says I'm so pleased with them I love this people as, they, as we cling to Christ, and by his power, walk in righteousness, he is pleased with us. And I just want to finish with this question. What does God see when he looks on this church? Oh, that we would be this peculiar people who brings pleasure to God, who finds favor in his sights, in the way, sight in the way that we work, play, and live. So let's cling to Jesus. Let's give up our evil ways, church. And let's multiply not evil in this world, but the the kingdom of God, amen? Let's pray together. Band, come on up. Father, we worship you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, that you've given to us. You are so merciful. Help us to cling to your mercy in Jesus. Transform us, make us righteous as we build our relationship with you. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, God, would you allow them to to turn and come to you in faith? Lord, help us as we worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So church, I wanna invite you to.